to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Hello, I'm Daria Brown. Welcome back to Affect Autism. This week I have two IDCL expert training leaders in the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model from the Rebecca School in Manhattan. We have a returning guest, Morgan Weissman, who's an occupational therapist and a floor time consultant at the Rebecca School and also works with families privately through OccuPlay. We also have a new guest today. Melissa Sinicori is part of the Rebecca School floor time department and is a certified teacher. Welcome. Thank you for having us, Daria. Great to be back. How exciting. Nice to see you guys on a very bright and very snowy day in Toronto, in the Toronto area. And it looks like it's bright and sunny out Melissa's window as well, <laughs> but very cold. <laughs> um, today, we are talking about a topic that was brought up at Affect Autism four or five years ago after I visited the Floor Time Center with my family, where Jake Greenspan had told me that a lot of times when kids are supposedly attention-seeking, a lot of parents and teachers and and people say our kids are just seeking attention. And he said, actually, it's just more emotion seeking that they are, are um, interested in. And they're craving that emotional interaction with other people. And so I thought, what a great topic to revisit. And so we have with us two experts who work with children on the spectrum all the time. And they are certainly familiar with this as I am with my son, who is a little emotion seeker 24 seven. So I know all about this as well. So uh, let's start off this topic with um, wondering why adults like to say, oh, my child's just seeking attention and always wanting attention. What do you think it is that makes us be a little bit triggered by that? <laughs> Well, I think that from a very basic level, I think if we're able to say something like attention seeking, it's easier to kind of pull, pull back and know what to do, right? So if we say, oh, the child is just seeking attention, we then have this concrete idea in our head of what then we can do. Oh, then I will retreat from attention. I'll no longer give them attention. And it seems simple. However, from a floor time perspective, that's really, we're not thinking about things from an inside out, right? We're thinking about things from an outside in. And I think it can be, it's, it's seductive to want to, to, for it to be that simple, right? Of like, oh, that's attention seeking. So I'm no longer going to give attention. But in the long run, we really want to be understanding what the child is communicating because behavior is actually communication. So what are they communicating to us? And if they are seeking attention, seeking attention, right? I love how you did that in quotation marks because it's kind of abstract, right? But if they are seeking attention, why not give them some more, right? So it's interesting. It's like multifaceted, this topic. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think like Melissa said, when you're able to kind of label it attention seeking, attention seeking, right? That gives you kind of some, a sense of control. Like I know exactly what this is and this is the concrete way that I'm going to support this. Like I remember hearing phrases like in the behavioral frame of reference, like plan ignoring. So if a child is crying or throwing a tantrum, kind of like, not looking at it and waiting for it to stop. And I think about what that experience is like for the child and, and also think about what the experience is like for the caregiver or the adult. I don't, I don't think that feels good for either party involved. I agree. And I know that it is really trying on the nerves sometimes if you're busy and you're trying to get things done and your child is just mama, 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 mama mama, mama, or they want something, um, or they're, they're just trying to really 
get whatever they can at whatever cost is sometimes what it feels like to us. But really by ignoring that, we're essentially saying, you want something from me, I can see you want something from me, and I'm gonna add to your frustration by not giving it to you, which to me doesn't make sense at all. So I know I will, I will sometimes say to my son, okay, okay, just a minute. Mama's gotta finish this. I'll be right there. Let me finish this first and then I'll come to you or um, depending on what kind of a good mood we're in, you know, and I say, oh, what is it? Oh, what is it? And then just like give full attention or you might have the, I'm busy. <laughs> just ignore them. You can have the range of responses and certainly nothing's wrong with that because we're only human and children are going to learn all the range of responses they're going to get from others. But what we want to remember is in the best of times, when we're happy, when we're in a safe spot with the people who care about us the most, whether it's at Rebecca School with our therapists or whether it's at home with our parents, we want to give our children practice that they can then um, play that social field with their peers later on. So where does this, it's not attention seeking, but emotion seeking come from. Well, Daria, as you were given your three different examples of your responses, I noticed your affect, right? And how different your affect was in all three of those responses. And it's important for children to be able to experience their caregivers, their peers, their teachers, their therapists through a range of emotions. Because how else do you understand what it means to be a part of a relationship if you can't experience your people through a range of emotions. So when you say something like emotion seeking, it just reminds me of the fact that people crave genuine, real emotion People from other people. It's very clear when someone is not genuine, right? You're ever somewhere, it's very clear, someone's talking to you, it's very surface level, very fake, you can tell. Children can tell as well. And I think when you say emotion seeking, people are really seeking genuine connection. And only through real affect and real emotion do we actually feel genuine connection with another person. So it's not in those three, that those three ways that you just made an example of how to respond to a child, those are all three very real ways to respond. And I think sometimes it can be misconstrued, like you always have to respond with big happy affect, but that's not real. That's not what the real world is. I think it's more about our understanding and, and our intention of what we bring into a relationship. It's not about the surface of exactly what your face looks like or exactly what you say, but it's more about your internal understanding of that the child is actually seeking real emotion from you because we're all seeking real emotion all the time. So that's what I was thinking about when you said emotion seeking. Yeah, and it reminds me of, Melissa and I have kind of gotten into this routine of asking each other, who is this about right now? What, what is the goal and who is it about? Because sometimes as caregivers or teachers it, or therapists, it is about us, right? If you are working on something really hard and you really need it to concentrate and your son is trying to get your attention, you have to balance of that this is about me, I'm doing something that's really important to me, but I also acknowledge and see that you are here. And I think that's, that's such an important piece that comes with awareness, right? Of like Melissa said, we're not always gonna respond the same way every time, that's not, how any relationships work in a relationship. It involves two or more people and both people have really important thoughts, feelings and ideas. And we have to start to think about how we kind of bring them together. And I feel like the kindest thing we can do to children is respond in a real way. It's it's very, it's almost like, let's give, let's let parents off the hook. 
you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to respond perfectly every time because that's a false misrepresentation of what life is actually like. And sometimes I remember as I was, I was a teacher at Rebecca school, I kind of learned the power of the words yes and no, right? So like in the beginning of being a teacher, being a caregiver to these children, it's like when they're asking you something, the you feel like the immediate response should be no sometimes, right? But if you can shift your thinking to think about, Daria, how you said before, like, wait, wait, yeah. If you start with yes sometimes, the child's asking you for a snack and you say, yes. First, I find that your affect of just saying yes first can be a really concrete way to support the child's regulation in having to wait. I don't, I don't know about you. I don't like to hear no, you know? So um, I think it's sometimes just like your intention of how are, how am I going to support this child at capacity one in order to allow them to be able to wait for me to finish whatever I have to do, something like that. Now, I know that in one of the podcasts in the Rebecca Listener, Chris Hernandez interviewed someone at your school whose name I forget, who does improv. And it was about yes and. And I, I loved that podcast because it said that in anything in life, it's always better to say yes and and the person then extended it to floor time. And it was just, it was great. So I'm going to put the link to that podcast in the blog post for today's podcast as well. Um, I think that there was a few things that you said that I wanted to touch on. Um, one of them was that in the, in the blog post I did about co-regulation, in the early days of affect autism, I showed a clip from a developmental psychologist in Toronto named Jennifer Kalari, who uses the CALM method, C-A-L-M. And she has a podcast as well called Connected Parenting, which is great. And she quoted that, um, a stat that is pretty alarming that parents spend about seven minutes a week with their children in true connected interactions. And I might've like not got that exactly correct, but it was something that ridiculous. And when you think about how busy our lives are, and, and of course this was pre-COVID, maybe now we've spent more quality time with our families being home for a year together. But when everyone's in a rush and get up, get dressed, do this, get breakfast, eat, rush, rush off to school, come home, I'm busy cooking dinner, busy getting stuff ready for tomorrow, busy getting this done, there's not that quality interaction. You can imagine a child, especially one on the spectrum, who's trying to navigate the world, but having a lot of sensory um, challenges happening, perhaps other challenges that make usual interactions uh, either challenging or just different. They experience the world differently and are craving that emotional connection and just not getting it. And so a lot of times behavior that we see really could just be prevented if we just took those few extra minutes to connect with our children and let them know, I care about you, you're my sweetheart. I, I think I tell my son like 800 times a day, oh, you're my little angel bum. Oh, mama loves you, let me see those kisses. Those cheeks are so cute, and I'm showering him with like love and attention constantly to the point where he's like pushing me away and stuff. But at least, um, you know, if you take a minute to that, not that that's necessarily connecting because that might just be me just kissing him and ignoring him, <laughs> but if you take the, the moment to really, um, another Canadian psychologist says, connect before you direct. So connect with your child, get their eyes, their nod, their smile, and then, you know, sort of, if you have some kind of bidding to do, as he says, if you want them to put their shoes on or something, you might come in and say, wow, you're really doing well in that video game. Look at you go. <gasps> and then they sort of acknowledge you and then you say, put our shoes on now. 
as opposed to just walking in, hey, put your shoes on, and you're not even really connecting first. Um, but that's just a small piece of that emotional connection. But I think what Jake Greenspan was telling me back a few years ago when he was talking about this was really putting in the time every single day with these intense floor time sessions, which just means giving your child undivided attention where you guys are just connecting on an emotional level, where we're doing what you said, Melissa, we're, we're starting at the first capacity, regulating, co-regulating until we have shared attention and get that engagement and start to get back and forth interactions going and start problem solving together and just moving up that developmental ladder so that they feel those genuine connections with you and that affect is such a big part of it. Um, the, the affect in your voice as opposed to, oh, yes, yeah, sweetie, so what did you just do at school? Oh yeah, blah, 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 blah. And you're kind of flat affect, you're distracted on your phone and instead giving undivided attention. Like, how was your day? Oh, that sounds awesome. Um, I'm just making stuff up, but. <laughs> That's where it makes me think about when Dr. Greenspan used to talk about formal floor time versus informal floor time, right? Formal floor time is we are setting up ourselves and the environment for 20 minutes of undivided attention. And, you know, I think it's easy to think like, well, of course I do 20 minutes of undivided attention to my, with my child. But in reality, I think, especially during COVID, is a, that's a really hard thing, right? We're all very much attached to our phone. Mine is right next to me. We have tablets, we have computers, we're waiting for Zoom calls, schedules are unpredictable. So having that formal floor time, I think now is more important than ever before, because we're committing to 20 minutes of my just having this interaction with my child with no other distractions. And that takes work to set up, right? You have to clear your work calendar. Maybe you have to shut off your phone. Maybe you have to disable your email or now we have Apple watches. Maybe you have to put your Apple watch away for those 20 minutes. And that's, that's a lot of work. And I think these 20 minute floor time sessions look different all the time. Sometimes you have 20 minutes where you're in a really robust capacity three, capacity four interaction and you feel it and it's, you feel, we call the first three developmental levels, the sweat levels, because you're doing so much work, right? In the first three developmental capacities, trying to engage, connect and regulate with a child. But I also think it's important to take into consideration those 20 minutes sometimes where you're just sitting together. And it doesn't look like this big, robust, um, unbelievable floor time interaction every single time because though those interactions happen organically when the there's predictability set up where the child kind of knows this is going to happen all the time, and the the predictability of providing this space allows for children to be more regulated to engage with you because it's something that happens all the time. And it's not about our agenda, right? It's not about today, I'm gonna try and get this child into a pretend play game with this clip and they're gonna be you know, pretending I'm a dinosaur. If it happens organically, sure, but it's you have to be able to gauge where the child is every day at every moment and climb up and down the developmental ladder with them because it's not about us and what we think should happen all the time. Sometimes, sure. But I think it's important to recognize the putting in the effort to just being with somebody for a, for a period of time allows them to be more regulated, to engage with you. And where your child is developmentally really determines a lot of it too, because like you said, those early capacities are the sweat levels. And that's where I'm thinking about maybe the child is, seems to not be engaging. So you're using a lot more affect to sort of draw them into some kind of engagement. Whereas um, as the years have passed and my son's 
capacities have moved into four, five, and six. Now I feel a lot more comfortable just sitting with him and just waiting. And he does all the talking. It's, it's adorable, all the ideas that are piling out of a mom I'm telling you about this and that and this video game and this is what happened and this is what happened and this is what happened. And so I find myself more responding and then, you know, trying to, um, oh, well, wait a second. Hmm, well, what does that mean? And, you know, trying to get him to explain more and, and get into those WH uh, questions with him and things like that. But it, it looks so different depending on where your child is developmentally as well as it'll look different every day. Like if, if my child is more tired, maybe he's not as talkative and I'm sitting next to him while he's having a bath and he's just relaxing in the water and we're just hanging out. I'm, I'm sitting beside him and maybe I'm passing him one of his little cars and he's doing something with it. And um, just him knowing that I'm there and having that connection together is, is emotion seeking as well. Yeah, and it makes me think, how do you differentiate attention seeking versus connection or emotion seeking, right? We want our kids to want our attention. Attention seeking, when I hear the words attention seeking, I'm thinking like, oh, that's great. Yes, that the child or the adult recognizes that they have this sense of agency over the world or the environment and they can create change or create reaction. And that is really important. I certainly found my son experimenting with that a lot. Um, I guess it started about two years ago with that cause and effect within um, interactions with others. So really figuring out when I do something, what does the other person do back? And realizing, ooh, I, I can have an effect on people. And you know, started off with some negative things like slapping and <laughs> or other things but just weaving that around to um, his interest in other people. And I, I'm also thinking about what about the parents that are listening and saying, well, wait a sec, you guys are talking about all these kids seeking our attention and emotion. My child doesn't seem to do that at all. I'm the one seeking their attention and their emotion. And what would you say to those parents, Melissa? I think that putting in, I think there's a lot to say for a schedule, right? And I know that sounds kind of left field, but doing something every day, like I said before, really provides predictability so that there's not this pressure to show you emotion. Because I think when something is happening regularly, the child might feel more safe to be vulnerable. And when it's not you showing up saying, I remember think like my mom talking like every day, how was school? How was school today? How was school today? I'm like, oh, but then because it was this thing that happened all the time, I'm thinking Daria about how what you said before about your son, you shower him with love and kisses. And he's probably like, oh, mom, stop. But the kind of being showered in that attention, I think allows for kids to feel more vulnerable, more spontaneously. So it might not, like I said, it might not be this thing that happens all day, every day, but maybe after three or four weeks of you showing up regularly predictably, and predictably, then maybe you might get a smile that you didn't expect every so often. And that's how it starts. It starts really slow and low. We have to be really slow and low and engaging our children through capacity one regulation and being regulated and being able to connect to another person can be really challenging for people with developmental delays. So I think always keeping the intention that I'm going to keep showing up over and over and over again, no matter how hard it is sometimes is something that I would say to parents asking that question. Yeah, and then I think about, as an OT, I think about the sensory profile and the sensory integration piece of this. And I, I think far too often um, these 
type of things get missed where infants and babies don't necessarily qualify for early intervention or services because they are doing things motorically. But like you said, that connection piece, helping caregivers recognize those really subtle cues of when a sensation is too much or also when a sensation is pleasurable and helping to create experiences where you're giving more of those pleasurable sensations. So maybe the baby likes to be rocked up and down instead of back and forth. And that's something that's really subtle, but if the caregiver starts to recognize that, then they can start to do more of those interactions where they're moving the baby up and down. And because our babies, babies cry and that's how they tell us, but you know, babies can't outright say like, I don't like that. <laughs> um, and then sometimes thinking about the auditory environment and the voice, what type of voice is soothing or pleasurable? What type of intonation is soothing and pleasurable? Thinking about different sites, what is the baby like to look at or, or the child, right? We want to think about the, the child or even the adult sensory preferences and how we can use them to create more pleasurable and reciprocal back and forth. And I think a key piece in that is, uh, and I brought this up during my biggest revelations from being a floor time parent presentation at the DIR floor time conference was that a lot of times we can get in a rut as parents making assumptions about our kids that aren't necessarily true. And, and it might be for our own defenses. It might be because we feel like we've, we've tried a lot and we get frustrated, but I do think parents need to make sure they're aware of doing things a lot of times before they give up. So when Melissa said show up every day predictably, you could do that for a week and it feels like it's been months and then you just stop because well, I didn't get a reaction on my kids. So I don't know. And it might be day 38 that you get the reaction from your kid. And um, I did a podcast with the self-advocate, Emil Gauss, who, who mentioned, you know, he had been learning all along and all of a sudden at age 15 comes out with spontaneous sentences. So it's very easy for us to assume, oh, he's never going to speak. He's never going to do that. He just says single words. And then boom, all of a sudden your, your child spits out complex sentences. So we never know when that day is going to come when our child shows us their potential and what they have inside of them. And we don't necessarily know why it hasn't been shown before, um, but we can guess with the cue reading, like Morgan said, we can, we can figure these things out and try new things. And if that isn't difficult enough for parents to not know and always have to trial and error, uh, you can get something working and then it all changes. <laughs> so my son's going to be in puberty in the next few years and I'm going to be freaking out and asking all of you guys for advice because I've never had a teenager before. I, I don't know what to expect. And everything that I'm used to is going to change. And, and I experienced it recently because we essentially had a toddler for eight years and all of a sudden he switched into like a little schoolboy, and he's more like a, you know, developmentally five or six maybe even seven-year-old in the last year or so since COVID really. And it's just amazing to me how that shift just happened. And so now I'm relating to him differently. Um, and then puberty is going to bring a whole new onset of changes. And so not only do you not want to give up, but you also want to realize that you're going to have to be dynamic and change as your child grows as well. And what your child seeks from you um, will change and, and we're always trying to meet them where they are developmentally and sort of lift them up that developmental ladder as best we can from wherever they're at, which might change from day to day as well. Right. And as you're saying that uh, example is coming into my head from 
being a teacher. And so I worked with a group of kids that were very developmentally all in different places and working on individual goals from all, all different uh, capacities. And so one child who was very hard to engage in the group was really motivated by corn muffins. I don't know why, really motivated by corn muffins. So we started to make corn muffins every day in the classroom. At Rebecca School, we, did, we do have a kitchen and a stove and we have the ability to do that. Um, but in part of the community, every child was working on different individual goals. Like one kid would crack the egg, one kid would mix the batter. And it was something that happened repeatedly every day for months and months and months. And there was no real goal to it, but so, I mean, there was a lot of goals to it, but just being a part of the community. And there was one child who was very adverse to being a part of the community. And after a very long time of doing this daily, another member of our classroom had the idea to put Oreos at the bottom of the corn muffins. And so this child who every day did not want to participate in making corn muffins saw this idea of the Oreos being put at the bottom. And so he came in the classroom and he was angry and he said, corn muffins are not a dessert. They are a savory dish. I'm calling my mom and I'm letting her know that she has to tell you that corn muffins are a savory dish. They are not a dessert. Got on the phone, called his mom and expressed to his mom his dissatisfaction in our idea to make the corn muffins a dessert, right? There, there's no way that I could have orchestrated that to happen, to, to have his involvement in our daily activity be that way. But the predictability of it allowed him, he, although it was hard for him to be a part of the community, he eventually was a part of the community by stating his dissatisfaction, you know? So I think this, what we're both, what we're talking about providing the same thing every day allows for things to happen organically that you couldn't anticipate. Another child really being motivated by cracking eggs. I didn't know that that would happen, but just providing the space, that's our job as floor timers, right? And as parents to provide the space to have our kids come through as who they really are and what they're passionate about. And something so small as cracking eggs could be something that that child now has within them that they didn't have before from providing this very predictable environment where there's a very clear beginning, middle and end also. It's just the example that I thought of as you were talking. And it reminds me of Dr. Tippy once saying that there was a little girl and I don't know if it was a case study in, that, in the book um, respecting autism or not, but he said there was a little girl that for the life of everybody couldn't be engaged until one day piano and all of a sudden she sat down and she played the piano like she was a pro and she'd never had piano lessons and he said that music opened up the world for that little girl so um that you know just exposing our children to different things but within that predictable setting as well of being at school and I thought of a quick example too that you know um are, we're still on lockdown till next week. So my son's been doing virtual school and they have these like math sheets that they're trying to start to do addition. And so, you know, there's like the number 10 plus and there'll be like two baseballs and you have to say 10 plus two, and write down 12 and like no interest whatsoever. Seems like, you know, he likes to give up if it seems too hard, he can't figure it out. He just runs away. And then today, brilliant idea. They had a, a sheet with like a bunch of lines, like a parking garage, put that down and he got all of his little Mario Kart Hot Wheels cars. Okay, 10 cars. Now let's take away two. How many are left? Oh my goodness. He got every single one right. He couldn't be happier. Like he was super engaged in the activity because he loves Mario Kart. That's his latest thing. So um, yeah, it's just, it's exhausting and overwhelming sometimes for parents to think, well, how can I possibly try every possible thing to know what my child likes? Don't think about it like that. Just think today I'll try one thing or we'll just hang out together and see what happens. And, you know, over time, 
little things will happen and you'll pick things up. And you can even start with what you're passionate about, right? Like you can start engaging kids in activities that bring you joy as a start, just to have your child experience you experience something that you love. Yeah. And this is when I, when we think about affect and we think about the dual coding of affect, right? It's not just these different sensory inputs that give our body sensation. It's also affect. So when you're experiencing joy and pleasure, then your child also feels that sensation of joy and pleasure. Oh, when I have spontaneous things happen that just make me laugh, my son, all of a sudden, his interest is so peaked. Like, what's going on with mama? Like, he notices this genuine reaction and he's all curious. What, what is it, mama? What is it, mama? So, yeah, I mean, our kids, a lot of times we're so tense and anxious about trying to get things going with our kids that we forget to relax and just enjoy ourselves. And it's so important to enjoy things together with our kids. And it, it again, it circles back to that attention seeking and coming from a place of yes. When, when you say yes, I think that sends such a different message than no, right? Your body, like you get a different sensation in your body and it, I think makes you be more available to kind of work, work through an alternate plan. And just a silly example from today, uh, a friend of mine sent me this wonderful box of chocolates. And so it had like a care pack of all different types of chocolates and some cookies and that. So of course I let my son see. And so he came up and he was like, chocolates, mama, I want chocolates. I was like, okay, yeah, after your sandwich. So if I had said, no, we're not having chocolates right now, he feels very wounded hearing no. Like he right away, you can see he gets very upset and very distressed and, and dysregulated. But by saying, okay, after your sandwich, after lunch, and then he sort of can like, okay. And he's used to hearing that kind of thing from me. If it was the first time ever, and he really wanted whatever the, if it wasn't chocolates, it was something else, he might get distressed that I said he had to wait. But because he knows that we do this all the time, it's become that predictable routine. Like, I know that mama said after, so I know she says after, that usually means I get it, so I don't have to panic. <laughs> Right. And that it's important to be reliable too, right? Like if you always said, yes, wait, and then didn't follow through with your yes, that sends uh, a message too, right? But something I'm also thinking about is we have to be able to save our no's from when the answer is really no, when it comes to safety, when it comes to um, things where the answer really has to be a hard no, if you don't throw around your nose for free, then your nose really means something when you have to say them. And sometimes I find, for example, with chocolates in the sandwich, right? Um, if you know it's gonna be a really, could potentially be a really dysregulating thing, sometimes you gotta ham it up, right? Like, I cannot wait to have these chocolates with you. I'm so excited. I know you're so, I'm like really ham it up a little bit sometimes and not even, say the word wait, right? Like, I'm so excited to enjoy this chocolate with you. I can't wait for you to be done with your sandwich so that we can do this together. And like really make it a big thing, sometimes bigger than um, I guess feels natural, but it is, it's genuine. You're just trying to really support the child in their regulation because it's sometimes really hard to wait for chocolates after your sandwich. It really is hard <laughs> if, if they're there and ready for you, you know? And when we think about waiting or after, those words are quite abstract. And we think about time and understanding of time. So like, what does after or later feel like? I remember when I was younger, I started to understand time by thinking about my TV shows. Like if I was going on an airplane and it was a three hour airplane, I would think like, okay, I know that it's six episodes of Rugrats, like the, that's not so long, I can do it. <laughs> and 
helping our kids start to feel time right before they start to tell time but really feeling being able to feel like what is after feel like like how long do you think it's gonna take you, you to finish your lunch do you think that's gonna be something longer than if you were to go to sleep for the whole night and wake up in the morning you know starting to kind of be able to feel that experience and and you're starting to paint a picture of this is what the word means after this is this after symbolizes this and just a reminder for listeners and we've talked about it on the podcast with other people many times that sense of time and space really doesn't come until the sixth capacity in the functional emotional developmental capacities laid out in the the dir model and um i notice my son still you know he'll if if we'll say, oh, you know, that's happening in six hours or something, he'll say one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, now, and I'll say, no, that was only six seconds. What's six minutes? What's six um, hours? What's six days? What's six weeks? What's six months? They really don't have it yet, even though we think that they do because they understand days of the week or they understand months of the year. It's that interoception of that feeling that you mentioned, like that sense of it and having that practice um, with waiting and, and things like that helps them build that capacity. Although it, it'll take years to get that sense of time if our kids are still little. Yeah, which I think is what makes um, the pandemic so challenging because we don't know, we don't have a definitive answer of when it's going to end. And I think that's hard for everybody. And something I've, I've seen with students is just using that affect and connection of like, I also cannot wait for this to end. And like, you're not the only person experiencing these feelings. I like, there are other people who are also experiencing this and we're in it together and you're not alone. Are you guys still on virtual school at Rebecca right now? We are still in a hybrid model. Okay, so some are there for a couple of days a week and, mm -hmm. and some are yeah. virtual as well. And you know, it's, I think it's similar to what's going on in many different schools is some, some weeks schools are being closed down for different reasons. And it's, it's a really unpredictable time, but really reminded me of the power of affect and connection. Right. And through the hybrid model, we're learning a lot about students. We're learning a lot about students and their families, what their homes are like, and really gaining more of connection with the parents has been very helpful for a lot of the individual programs of some of the kids, but also learning about the sensory profiles of certain kids who are responding really well to Zoom. I mean, it's there's nothing like being in person, but also there's a certain level of comfortability that people have in their homes when their visual field of what's happening is only right in front of them and they don't have to worry about unpredictable things happening behind them. There's certain things that we can definitely find the silver linings or with this hybrid model. Um, and also, like I said, connecting with the parents has been really helpful too for a lot of the individualized programs. Well, I've learned that my husband's better at virtual school than I am. <laughs> because if my son gives up, he just runs downstairs and whatever I say, he doesn't come back. Somehow my husband gets him to sit there and do the work. I don't know how. <laughs> he must, must be more engaging than I am with him somehow. But um, yeah, I mean, this this brings us to another topic that you started to touch on that we wanted to cover, which was this whole idea of the word no. And you mentioned, Melissa, how we want to be, we don't want to be saying no all the time because when, when it's really important and our kids need to understand, no, that's really dangerous, we want uh, them to realize that that's something that we say when it's really urgent. But similarly, um, we want our children to be able to say no to us. So we were talking earlier about 
engaging our kids, trying something new, trial and error. It might take lots of times before you have um, responses from your children. And one thing that um, I, I have heard said as well is that we really want our children, we would rather have our children protest than say nothing or just continue in their comfortable routines, whether it's repetitive activities that, that they're comfortable in, which is fine as well, it's regulating. But when we want to um, try something new or try and get some interactions going and we would mu much rather them protest and say no or, or throw something or you know, do something to indicate to us, to communicate to us, no. And um, I know Morgan, you had some thoughts on why that's so, so important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, go it goes back to helping our children or young adults recognize that you have thoughts, idea and ideas and a sense of agency and people need to listen to you. So when you say no, somebody needs to, to make sure that, that they're responding to that. And that's really powerful to say no and then somebody say, oh, okay, you, you said no. I remember my, when my niece was little, she, when she first started talking and she would say no, I used to say, oh, you said no. And then she would start to say the, this phrase, I say no. And like, she was very powerful when she said it, she had her, her hands on her hip. And I think it helped her recognize that she has some sense of control over things. And it also created a dialogue of, oh, you say no, you're not ready. Hmm. And then I was able to see kind of like what, where she was going next with what her idea was and what her inner drive and her intention was. And I guess not looking at, at no as like a negative behavior or, but really thinking of protesting as, as being a beautiful thing where somebody is sharing their preference and their opinion. And then kind of figuring out, sometimes we work around the no, right? Thinking about, well, why is the answer no? Is it because the child is feeling uncomfortable trying something new? Is it um, the child feels very worried or nervous about something? And then also thinking about, it comes back to who is this for, right? Like, why do we want the answer to be yes in this given moment? And what's, what's the overall big picture that's happening? And it also allows kids to um, reach some higher developmental capacities too sometimes, right? I'm thinking about um, when a child wants to say, go to the roof and it's time to do something else in the classroom. And you can say something like, give me three reasons why you think, why, give me three reasons why this should happen right now. And of course, we're thinking higher developmentally, and maybe the child isn't even there, but it's important to expose the child to even thinking in that way, to even if, if they can't necessarily do it yet, you're opening the door for them to be expanding a little bit more on their agency and like really what the reasons why are. I'm thinking about, um, you know, often when kids come to Rebecca school and they come from a more behavioral program, the parents will report to us and say, like, it's been really hard after a few months of being at Rebecca school. And we kind of say, well, good, because we want it to be a little bit more hard because we want them to understand that they have the capacity to have an opinion and to have an idea. Sometimes in more behavioral settings, there's not the opportunity to have an idea or an opinion about something. And so once you understand that you can, well, a lot of doors open that weren't open before and makes things probably a little bit harder, but in a good way. And so sometimes we have to explain to 
to parents. Like, I know it's a little bit harder right now, but this is the reason why. They're starting to understand that they have agency and the capability to say no to something. So I understand it's a little bit harder, but it's actually a good thing. (laughs) And then it goes back to affect, right? And how you respond. So if your child says no, how does that make you feel? And also, how are you going to respond, right? Because I feel like that the the telltale of like teachers being like, or adults being like, because I said so, right? What kind of affect and sensations does that project versus no, you are saying no, right? That creates a different experience for the interaction. I remember a few years ago, a student and I, we made up a song about no to the tune of Jingle Bells. And it became less about the answer being no and more about we're going to have this shared joyful kind of silly experience around the word no. I think that's going to be my takeaway from this podcast is trying to instill in my son, why do you not want to stay here? Give me three reasons why you wanna go back downstairs instead of staying here at the computer (laughs) with your friends. This is just little short half hour bursts. It's not like he's expected to sit there for eight hours a day. It's like little half hour burst, then they get a half hour break, another half hour burst, another half hour break. So um, I think he might, you know, he might say, because I wanna play my video game, because, and then he might just pause, but getting him to start to think like that is going to be my takeaway. Um, I like that idea. And, and yes, I can hear parents out there saying, yeah, but sometimes my kid has to do these things. Yes, they do. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. when they say no, what am I supposed to do if they just keep saying no? (laughs) Like taking a bath, right? Like you have to take a bath. How are you going to navigate that? Right. Um, it's hard, right? Like if, if we had all the, if we had the exact answer for everything, that would be so wonderful, right? But it's all situational and about compromise and negotiation and connecting about what the real reasons that no might mean. Because it might, if you can start to understand the reasons as to why it might be a sensory piece. It might be a certain time of day and putting the intention out that you are trying to understand sends a certain message. Rather, it's not, you need to take a bath because I said so, because I'm your mother and that's the end of that. It's about, if you put the intention out of, I want to understand why you feel this way. Mm -hmm. People receive that. And it might, once again, on the 38th bath time routine, you might come to some sort of realization, but it takes time and repetition. And then it becomes a shared experience of how, how can we make this experience better for you? What sense of agency is it? Oh, I wonder if it's because you don't like it when I accidentally get water in your eyes. Oh, look, we can, we can order this visor and that will make sure that the water doesn't run in your eyes. Or I wonder if you feel cold when you get out of the tub. Maybe we can make sure that your towel is is right there. And I think that kind of breaks up that immediate power struggle of like, I said, you have to do this and now you're not listening. And now everybody's mad and frustrated. Yeah. And, and, oh, go ahead, Melissa. I'm thinking about too, how am I setting you up for bath time? How am I communicating that it's bath time? Is it something that I'm rushing through because I take for granted that I know this is going to happen, but maybe it's not something you're anticipating? How do I set you up for success? Do we do a certain activity before bath time to set up the predictable environment for you to know what's coming next about something that is a little bit more undesirable for you? How can I make this experience better for you. And I know we're making it sound like rainbows and flowers and sunshine, and it's not always. I really understand that. But like I said before, I really think it's about the intention of communicating you are trying to understand and you won't always be perfect. And I do think there's a time and a place to tap out 
right? Sometimes you have to take a step back when you're dysregulated. That's a big, another big piece of this being maintaining regulation as caregivers around these more challenging uh, things, but that's a whole other podcast, I'm sure, right? But um, yeah, I think putting out the intention that you are trying to understand sends a message that can be receive, received even non-verbally, just like the understanding of, I want to understand you. Yeah, and I, I think that's another piece that has come up in other podcasts too, is having that predictability, but also involving the child in it. So maybe we have a calendar of some kind with magnets or sticky notes or whatever. And we say to the child, like, do you want to have bath time before dinner or right before bed? If there, if you have flexibility around when to give bath time, help the child choose. Okay. And when do you want to have this? And when do you want to do this? Okay. And then you say, Oh, look, like, look, it's time. This is what you chose. And then they may still say, no, no. Oh, oh, okay. Hmm. That's what you said you wanted, but now you don't want that anymore. Where should we move it to? Hmm. Can you tell me like sort of giving them the power to choose as much as they can and have as much control as they can within some kind of structure of things they have to do. <laughs> yeah, and this, that's the start of self-advocacy, right? And accommodations and, and recognizing your own profile and your own preferences and what you need and then being able to share that. And I think that's probably the ultimate goal for, for everybody who is, is um, participating in floor time, right? Is to help and support people in recognizing what they need and helping them communicate what they need to other people so that they can be a version of their best selves. And that, that last part is most important for moms like me who want to do everything for our kids because we just want to make everything easy for them is that they have to learn that other people can't read their minds like mama does. <laughs> Uh, I could sort of tell what my son wants and why, but other people might not be able to. So he has to learn how to let them know and how to communicate that. So when I'm, you know, having daily interactions with him and he's comfortable around me, I can sort of push that a little bit and say like, tell me why, why do you want this? You know, what is it about it? What, why, why does that scare you? What's so scary about that? Tell mama, I want to understand or whatever it is. Um, that, that he's comfortable. Sometimes if I put him on the spot, like, what is it? Of course, it's too much and he doesn't want to answer, but just doing that wonder, hmm, I wonder what that was. I wonder why you got so upset about that. Hmm. And then giving them practice. With the understanding that he might not be able to answer. And, it's and, he, not and he might not know. Right, exactly. Sometimes I don't know why I'm scared, right? I'm like, I don't even know what's happening, you know? But I think that's an important piece of it too, is saying, I wonder why, but understanding that it, you might not get an answer. The intention of asking why isn't always to receive a concrete answer right away. It's to put the intention out, like, I want to understand you. And I want to be here for you in this challenging time. Or, and if you think about it, you can even have this intention around a time where they're, very regulated and very happy about something. I wonder what makes you so happy about that? So it's not just this interrogation of all the negative experiences they're having. What is it about that matchbox car that you love so much? I wonder why you love it so much. It might be easier to access than something that's really challenging and negative. Mm -hmm. That's a good point too. So practice around things that are easy, like boy, you really like all of these turtles because I got told the whole gamut of turtles this morning, Ludwig and Wendy and, and then they're the bad turtles and Larry and whoever. And then there's like Koopa Troopa and all these good turtles and there's so many turtles and they're all different colors and some of them are bad guys, some of them are good guys. And so, oh, wow, you really, really like all these turtles. Tell me, what is it about them that you like so much or whatever? Um, or I wonder, I wonder what's so exciting about these turtles. 
might give him practice at telling me reasons that then will help him talking about things that he's distressed about. Right. Cause he's, a, he might already, I mean, I'm not sure obviously, but he might already be regulated when he's experiencing his joy and love and passion for turtles. I know sometimes joy and passion about things can be upregulating too, but in these moments where he's already at capacity one, it might be easier for him to express a more higher level thinking capacity. Yeah, that, that varying degree of something, right? Like if I can take my, these three turtles that I really like and put them in, in an order of like, I like this one the best, and I still really like this one, but I, I like it a little less than, then that type of thinking can translate to emotional thinking, right? Of like, I'm really, I was really mad yesterday about this. And now I'm not as mad about it. I'm still a little bit mad, but not as mad as I was yesterday. Yep, yep. And that's getting into the seventh and eighth capacities. Um, that I, I spoke about at length with Dr. Andrea Davis a few podcasts ago. I'll put a link to that for people that are interested in checking that out as well. But um, yeah, I mean, we touched a lot of great topics today. I wanna thank you guys so much for being here. And um, if anyone has any questions or comments about the attention seeking versus emotion seeking or those rich emotional interactions and about um, advocating for our kids to be able to say no and protest and communicate with us, uh, feel free to drop your comments in at the bottom of the blog post at affectautism.com. And uh, thank you so much for coming. And I'm looking forward to the Rebecca School Conference, which is coming up. If listeners are interested, they can sign up at rebeccaschool.org. And I believe also at icdl.com, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning. Thank you so much for having us, Daria. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please check the ICDL parent website at the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for a virtual floor time consultation or for the weekly parent support meetings. We aim to help you implement your program at home using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, taking into account your child's developmental level, their individual differences, and using your relationship with them to help promote and support their development. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions.